सहनावतु सहनौ भुनक्त सह वीर करवाहे तेजस्वीनावधीतमस्तुमाषावे ओ शाति 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 May the Lord protect us both, the teacher and the taught, together by revealing knowledge. May the Lord protect us both by giving us the results of knowledge. May we attain vigor together. Let what we study be illuminating. May we not cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So in this class, we are doing the Kato Upanishad, and we are fairly far along in... Um, when we stopped before the break, we had done the 11th mantra, the second chapter, the second section, and the 11th mantra. We had gone up to that. I'll chant the mantra. I think that will be familiar for, for people. Suryo yatha sarva lokasya chakshu Nalipyate chakshu shair bahya doshai. Ekas tatha sarva bhutantaratma. Nalipyate loka dukhe na bahya. I'll read the translation. We've already done this. So I'll just, it's, it's uh, recapitulating what we have done. The translation of the mantra from Swami Gambhirananda-ji. Uh, he translates it as, Just as the sun, which is the eye of the whole world, is not tainted by the ocular and external defects. Similarly, the self, that is but one in all beings, is not tainted by the sorrows of the world, it being transcendental. Um, the question is that if we are this one awareness, which is one and the same in all beings, and pervading everything, not only the, it's the one consciousness in all of us, but it's everywhere, inside, outside, it pervades everything that exists. If that is true, then um, it raises the old problem of, you know, it's known as the problem of pantheism. You know, if this world itself, God has become this world, then the world is a nasty place. There are lots of problems with this world. So it will become a, a God immersed in problems. And anyway, why call it God in that case? Uh, why not just call it the world? And then how would you save this divinity which has now become this world? Uh, the sorrows of this world, uh, you know, from physical injury to illness, to unhappiness, to misery, from evil, from suffering, all of those will affect. If, if it's uh, everywhere, then whatever is there in this world will affect uh, the, that reality, that consciousness. And if I am that, uh, how will I be, uh, how will I be able to transcend sorrow? And the whole idea was to transcend, go beyond sorrow. You'll be affected by everything in the world. Right now, I am this one consciousness I feel in this body. And I'm affected by the problems of this body. I'm affected by the problems of this mind. And to the extent by this, through this body and mind, I'm aware of the world. I'm affected by the problems of the world too. How, how is, are you saying that this consciousness is beyond sorrow? As he gives an example of the sun. There was one sun shining, um, reveals this world to us. But notice, the sunlight is not affected by what it reveals. So there's snow. Last, last uh, couple of weeks ago, there was this tremendous amount of snow upstate. Luckily, here in New York, in, uh, we were, in the city itself, we were spared the, the snow, although the bitter cold was here. But there's snow, brilliant snow. The, the lake here froze. So the sunlight falling on the, on the frozen lake, on the, on the ice there, Notice that the sunlight didn't become icy when it fell on, on the ice, illumined the ice. When finally in the last two, day, three days, the ice has melted, it's water. Same sunlight is illumining the water. But the sunlight doesn't become wet by illumining the water. Uh, if uh, snow melts and everything becomes muddy, the same sunlight which illumined the brilliant snow and uh, now illumines the muddy after effects of snow. Does the sunlight become muddy? No. Exactly like that, the sunlight which reveals everything and yet is not affected by what it reveals, that's an example. Exactly like that, you the consciousness, you reveal whatever is going on, but you are not affected by, by whatever is going on 
the defects of what is revealed by consciousness do not affect consciousness. Why? Because the word used is by here, transcendental. Because consciousness transcends, the illuminer transcends what is illumined. The good and the bad, whatever is revealed by consciousness, that does not affect consciousness. Um, remember, here we are talking about consciousness, the Atman. We are not talking about the mind. The mind which thinks about the world will be affected by the world. But that consciousness which illumines the world and the mind, that is not affected by the external objects or by internal, the, the subjective arisings which we call thoughts, emotions. It reveals. It just is and it reveals. So we saw, I think I read out some of Shankaracharya's uh, comments in his commentary here. He points out, Loko yavidyaya swatmani adhyastaya kama karmodbhavam dukkham anubhavati. Natu sa paramarthata swatmani. Because of our um, ignorance, that we do not know ourselves as this one consciousness, therefore we identify ourselves with this mind and this body, and then we experience an external world and subjective feelings, emotions, ideas. And some of them are, we, we like them and we chase them. Some are disturbing, unpleasant, like a physical illness or an unhappiness in the mind. So we dislike them, we try to avoid them, and thus sentient beings are caught in samsara. But these problems in the world, natu sa paramarthata swatmani, all these problems of samsara, these are not in the ultimate reality, they are not in the self, in, not in consciousness. This is what Shankaracharya says. In you, the consciousness, the world itself is an appearance. It's not that in you, the consciousness, there are actually trees and stones and the sky and the earth. Yeah. It's an appearance. That which is appearance cannot affect reality. All the water in a mirage is not enough, is not sufficient to wet one grain of sand of the desert. Um, even the most venomous snake seen by mistake in a rope, in a rope mistaken as a snake. All the venom in that snake is not, uh, will not make the rope poisonous. Uh, in a movie, the movie example, uh, a conflagration in, on the screen does not burn the screen. Uh, a great deluge in a movie does not make the screen wet. Why, why not? Because if... Uh, the reality and appearance, they belong to two different levels of existence. Reality really exists. That's why we call it reality. Apparently, uh, appearance only apparently exists. That's why we call it appearance. And that which apparently exists cannot affect that which re really exists. Other way around, does that which really exists, does it affect what uh, apparently exists? Well, yes, in the sense that it gives the very existence to this apparent existence. Um, if the mind were not there, there would be no dreams. If the film screen were not there, there would be no movies. If the desert were not there, there would be no mirage. Similarly, if consciousness were not there, there would be no samsara. So consciousness, you the Atman, you are the inner reality of this samsara. Um, you give it existence and you illumine it, but you are not affected by it. the real you. You are not affected by it. That's what he wants to say. And then he gives the examples. Yatha, just like Raju, rope, Shukti, um, the nakar, which you find, like a seashell, which you find on the seashore. Um, Shuktika, Ushara, Ushara means desert, a dry place, Gagana, sky. So, for examples, rope, um, the seashell, the desert, and the sky. What happens to them? Sarpa Rajata Udaka Malani. Snake. Rope is mistaken and you see a snake. Or uh, the seashell is mistaken and someone thinks it's a piece of silver. Or uh, the desert, you mistake it and you see it as uh, water in, in a mirage. You think it's water. Or the sky. Mala means dirt. So sometimes children think that the sky has become dirty. It has to be cleaned or something, scrubbed. So, but the sky is not dirty. It's just maybe cloudy or dusty or whatever in the, in the atmosphere. Then what's the point he's making? In all these errors, these are examples of error. These are examples of illusion. 
न रज्वादीनाम स्वतः दोष रूपाणी संति नन ऑफ दीज दीज डिफेक्ट्स रोप अपीयरिंग एज अ स्नेक द ड्राई डेजर्ट अपेरेंटली लुकिंग लाइक अ वेट ओएसिस और यू नो स्काई अपीयरिंग डस्टी और द सी शेल एक्चुअली लुकिंग लाइक लाइक सिल्वर नन ऑफ दीज एक्चुअली exist uh, in the, in the rope or in the uh, sky or in the desert or in in the you know what is what is the example uh, in the um, uh, this seashell not tad doshai tesham lepah i'm skipping a little bit so if there are any defects in the appearance those are do not affect they do not affect they do not smear the reality so the snake is poisonous it looks like a poisonous snake none of the poison actually affects the rope similarly none of the water in the mirage makes the desert wet viparita buddhi adhyasa bahya hite because whatever is uh, superimposed by uh, by ignorance ignorance in our intellect makes the rope appear like a snake but the rope transcends the snake superimposed upon it yeah that's a good way of putting it the rope reality transcends the appearance the appearance which is superimposed by ignorance we don't know the rope as it is and we make a mistake of thinking of it as a snake our mistake uh, the rope transcends our mistake similarly you the atman you the pure consciousness you transcend the world appearance and therefore nothing in the world appearance can actually damage you hurt you tatha just like that shankaracharya says sarvo loka kriya karaka phalatmakam he says all this world which is which consists of action and its results action the instruments of action and the results the law of karma basically we perform actions with the help of the body and the senses and the mind and we get the results what are the results pleasant and unpleasant good actions dharmic actions we get sukha pleasure pleasant results adharmic action being deliberately naughty or uh, uh, evil and we get the results which is pain or suffering so none of that natu atma sarva lokatma api san विपरीतरोपनिमित्तेनलिप्यतेलोकदुखेनबटअंडरनीथआलफदिसयू because of seeing that only to be the real it's like being trapped in a movie there may be a horror movie then you suffer or being trapped in a movie which is a comedy you may laugh but it's still it's still delusion it's not real but the real you the one who's watching the movie is not affected by the movie whether it's good or bad so this is what's the point here though you are consciousness and you are one in all beings you're not affected by the sufferings of all beings you're one consciousness and you pervade all living beings and external what what is what seems to be external solid world out there it's all pervaded by one consciousness the defects of that world they also do not affect you because you transcend them how do you transcend them because they are all appearances in you and it's not very you know the thing to notice it's a description of bare reality when you when you say things like that it's one consciousness transcending everything it, everything appears in one universe appears in one consciousness the fact is what else is it right now right now um, if even if you forget advaita vedanta just physiology and psychology and brain science will tell you that whatever we are experiencing we are not experiencing actually directly in contact with a hard world outside whatever we are experiencing is a construction in our minds generated by the sense impressions from outside and uh, the inner uh, you know uh, 
uh, arisings in our mind. The subject and the object come together to produce this and all of it is appearing in consciousness. What else could it be? Our life is basically objects appearing in consciousness. It's consciousness and its contents. It feels like something. That's our life basically. All of it. Whether there is an external universe um, quite apart from us, whether consciousness is generated by the brain, whether it's just a material world, all of those, whether it's you take a materialistic approach, whether you take a subjective idealist approach, or you take an Advaitic approach, whatever it is, all those philosophical uh, speculations come later on. Nobody can deny, even the hard, most hard and fast materialist cannot deny. Right now, literally what we are experiencing is consciousness and its contents. That's it. Now, moving on. How does this help us? What, what results does it do us? First of all, you have just been told by the example of the sun, you are safe. You as consciousness do not have any problems. And say, so, yeah, as consciousness, I might not have problems. But the world has so many problems. And the body has so many problems. And my mind has so many problems. And other sentient beings around me, live. all my neighbors and family members, they have so many problems. And yet, what it is saying is all those problems are an appearance in consciousness as our bare nature, as pure consciousness. You transcend all those problems. That level you are safe. I love that definition by Wittgenstein that religion is the search for ultimate security. Um, and it's true. Advaita Vedanta is telling, this, this mantra is telling us you have that ultimate security if you were to know yourself as you truly are. It's like, for example, a schizophrenic person sees a lot of problems in the world outside. I'm being persecuted. I'm uh, People are out to get me. You know, that movie was there, A Beautiful Mind. And yet, you would tell such a person, it's all right. There is no problem at all. It doesn't seem like that to that person. But that person, you realize, transcends the problems which are appearing to him. Similarly, we are all, in a certain sense, uh, schizophrenic about our lives and our worlds. This, it is an appearance to consciousness. Consciousness itself, like sunlight illuminating a world, is completely unaffected by what it reveals. At that level, you are safe. Not as body. Not even as an individual mind. As a body mind, you're going to be affected by uh, the world. All right. Moving on. The next mantra. So these are all powerful. They are descriptions of uh, our real nature as pure consciousness and also shows us how to realize what we are and how to get the benefit of that. So first of all, note that you are safe. Second, again, on the, the theme of being safe, like, just like the schizophrenic uh, patient, to extend that example a little further, you may know that the patient is safe and there are no problems as what the patient feels like, but the patient's suffering will not cease until the patient sees that for himself. Then the suffering ceases. Similarly, we are safe right now. You need not worry about the birth and death and samsara and all terrible things uh, because at the ultimate level as Atman or Brahman, we are safe already, whether you're enlightened or not. But our suffering will not cease until we come to see it until we realize it. And if our goal is to cease suffering, then we must, enlightenment is a must. Because people can ask, you know, if you, what you're saying is, it's all right. In that case, why should I pursue spiritual life? Well, because why did you start in the first place? We started spiritual life in the first place because we wanted to overcome suffering. We wanted to attain peace. We wanted, wanted to attain happiness. Well, until we have attained that, until we can honestly say that I have the peace that passes understanding, the peace that cannot be shaken. I have the happiness which is spontaneous and natural. I'm ever fulfilled. Until I can honestly say that, at least to myself, I must pursue this path of realization. Right. Now, the twelfth mantra. Eko vashi sarva bhutantaratma ekam rupam bahudaya karoti tamatmastham gena nupashyanti dhira Desham Sukham Shashvatam Netaresham. This is going to tell us how to attain uh, 
everlasting bliss. So let's pay attention. It's worthwhile. It's most worthwhile. Twelfth mantra. I'm reading out Swami Gambhirananda's translation. Eternal peace is for um, eternal happiness, actually, not peace. Uh, is for those, and not for others, is for those who are discriminating and who realize in their hearts him who being one, the controller and the inner self of all, makes a single form multifarious. All right, what does that mean? You, the Atman, is one existence, consciousness. It's one, ekaha. It's one. Ekaha, one. Now, this one, what it means here is, it's one in the midst of the many. It's the one appearing as the many. It's consciousness appearing to itself as the multifarious world. It is the one existence appearing as many existence, existence or existing things of the world. That one existence, that one consciousness, you are. Because when you say one in the context of religion, it can mean different things. Uh, it can mean God is one, for example. That's, a, that's not what they want, want to say. They, they agree that God is one, but they're going beyond the concept of God. So when you say that they're, uh, it's not polytheistic, they are not multiple gods, there's only one God. So that's a big argument the monotheistic religions make. Um, it comes from Judaism, but then Christianity and Islam also. That there are not many gods. There's the one God who is our um, eternal father in heaven, or Allah, or Jehovah, that the same, the one God. And that's uh, understood well enough in uh, Vedanta also, that in this wild diversity of names and forms which you find in Hinduism, behind it all is one Ishwara or one Saguna Brahman. That's me one meaning of one when he says it's one reality. But that's not the, uh, the deeper meaning here. In fact, even material nature in Vedanta, in Sankhya, material nature is also called one. All of this wild diversity of things in the world, from quasars to quarks, from blue whales to the COVID virus, all of it, from a grain of sand to planets, all of it comes from one nature, Prakriti. So that is, uh, there is, there's a unity at the heart of material nature also. So that's also called one. Um, so in that sense, the physicists have it right when they are trying to pursue or develop a grand unified theory. In material nature also, there is unity. That's also one. God is also one. But here, when it says one, it means in the multiplicity of this entire universe, there's one underlying reality. And of course, you are that one. So one underlying reality in the multiplicity of this material universe. Um, this one is uh, is also washi it's called washi means it is the controller the, the moment you say, we say controller we immediately you know the, it should come up in our minds so he's talking about god then so it is not only one underlying reality it's also the controller of the universe from a vedantic perspective advaitic perspective it's not that there is some big boss sitting in the headquarters office up there and controlling this entire universe or some person in the control room pushing buttons. Not in that sense. Uh, Shankaracharya explains, Jagat Dvashe Vattate. It exists controlling the universe. How? Kuta? In, in which way? Sarva Bhuta Antaratma. Being the inner reality, the inner self of all things. Just as in, in this body-mind, it's one consciousness which illumines all the experiences of our lives. Not only that, it gives existence to this body-mind. Similarly, in everything in the universe, sentient and non-sentient, in non-sentient beings, Atman or Brahman gives existence. It is the being, the very existence of those things. In sentient beings, it's not only the very existence of our bodies and minds, but also the illuminer, that which gives us the first-person experience, consciousness. So in that sense, it controls the world. Just an Aside here, I heard you know, two comments by two speakers. Um, one is a very noted physicist, um, Roger, Sir Roger Penrose. And there, 
he says something he he is well known for his theory where he thinks that um, consciousness is the key to the um, to the physical universe in what sense so i'm i'm just repeating his words because i'm very careful here it's way beyond my uh, <laughs> my expertise my physics doesn't exceed school level physics so let alone uh, this level of cosmology or you know fundamental physics so these are his words sir roger penrose he says consciousness enters this universe by the collapse of the wave particle duality that's his theory now the interviewer asked him why do you think so what kind of reasoning led you up to this um he said i got this idea first when i attended a course of lectures so i'm i'm just quoting him verbatim here sir roger penrose he said i got this idea when i first attended a course of lectures on mathematical logic by one professor steen i think this was at oxford where he was either at oxford or at cambridge um, and i understood that consciousness is not computable it doesn't compute it's 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 not computable and then the next step in his argument was then i was thinking if consciousness is at all part of this physical universe and it's not computable what's the other thing in physics which is not computable and he says it's the wave particle duality and therefore they must have something to do with each other anyway so that's the that's what i heard and the other thing which i heard was from donald hoffman he said that it is now mainstream physics that space time is not the end of the story it's not the fundamental reality there's something deeper than space time and it's beginning to seem as if consciousness could be the deeper reality now put these two together it, it, he's just putting up these are theories they're certainly not uh, accepted or proven as yet but just put this together here are leading physicists very mainstream one of them is a nobel prize winner who's talking about the fundamental reality of this universe being consciousness or at least consciousness being implicated in the fundamental reality of this universe but just for a moment let's step back and think how amazing this is because to me studies uh, physics at the school level you would not expect physicists to be talking about consciousness because uh, the way we all uh, we have been taught we have come to think about consciousness is the consciousness is a higher order emergence uh, the reality of this universe is space time matter energy and somehow it leads to a universe a big bang in this universe and somehow somewhere in some part of this universe in some some planets like the earth this material universe becomes a living universe part of it this matter becomes life living bodies um, from unicellular uh, uh, beings to complicated bodies like our bodies living bodies emerge and somehow some of these living bodies have sophisticated nervous systems and brains and somehow these physical things living matter bodies with nervous systems and brains produce something called consciousness so consciousness comes much later in the story of the universe that's how we we were taught and that's that's the common sense idea of science but now physicists who investigate the fun, nature of fundamental reality and the physical reality they are saying somehow the story could begin with consciousness clearly they are not talking about um, consciousness in the sense of something produced by a living body and nervous systems and brains so just leave it at that what it struck me as from an advaita vedanta perspective is when we investigate ourselves through drig drishya viveka the you know the seer and seen or the uh, waking dreaming deep sleep or the five levels of the human personality whichever methodology we come to the conclusion we are awareness just consciousness bare awareness and according to advaita vedanta this whole universe also emerges the physical universe not just ourselves the universe this vast universe is an emergence from consciousness that is called brahman 
the consciousness within us, what we are, Atman. That from which the universe has emerged is called Brahman. And the whole point of Advaita Vedanta is to say Atman is Brahman, Tattvam Asi. Now it begins to seem uh, that uh, science is not, if, if not saying that, pointing that way. I am consciousness. You go to David Chalmers or someone, the heart problem consciousness, they will tell you the consciousness you are, uh, if you are consciousness, you cannot be a product of this body-mind. That's the heart problem of consciousness. Then go to Sir Roger Penrose or uh, Hoffman or others. They're saying this universe is uh, fundamentally consciousness. Then they're the same thing. You and the universe are one reality. Anyway, so in that sense, it is the controller of the universe. Of course, it's in the sense of um, God, if you were in the theistic sense, of course. That same consciousness is the Lord or the God of the universe. And in that sense, the controller. Sarvabhutantaratma. It is the inner self of all sentient beings. Ekam rupam karoti. The one being who becomes, transforms, makes the multiplicity out of that oneness. Here I'm, I'm going to quote from uh, one sadhu teaching this thing in the Himalayas in Hindi. He said, but I'll just tell you the English. Very powerfully he puts it. He says, just as, you have to imagine a, 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 you know, a fair, uh, in Hindi it's called a mela. So a traditional rural fair uh, in India where there are lots of um, toys made of clay for children. So clay toys. They're the camels and the horses and the tigers and whatnot. They're all cutely made of clay. So he says, when you look at all the toys made of clay, whether it's camels, horses or tigers, they're all clay. Just as one earth has become all of these. Just as one water appears in a droplet of water and in a mountainous, mountain-high wave in the ocean. It's the same water, same water principle. Just as one fire um, is there in a burning log of wood or in the scalding hot boiling water, it's the one principle of fire, same everywhere. As the one wind, air, is the breeze which caresses your face or the, uh, the hurricane which is brewing out there. Uh, uh, just as in this, it's this one sky, whether it's the sky inside a pot, inside a, a house, or the vast sky outside, it is one unbounded space. You know, the five elements is beautifully earth and water and fire and air and sky. He's using all of those as examples to show that there's one principle which can appear in so many ways. And then he goes further. It is just as it is one mind in all our daydreams and in all our dreams at night. Whatever we see, whatever we experience, smell, taste, touch in those dreams, it's just one mind appearing in all those ways. Just as it is the uh, one rope which mistakenly someone sees as a snake, someone sees as a discarded garland from a, from a temple, someone sees as a crack in the earth. These are the classic examples uh, used in, uh, you know, in Sanskrit to show error. So as the ground of the error is present in all forms of the error, something is mistaken for something else. Whatever you mistake it for, the reality is the underlying reality is the same. In the same way, it is this one inner self of all beings, this one inner consciousness which you are, which appears in all these ways as this entire multifarious universe. That's the meaning of ekam, one, rupam, form, bahuda, multiplicity, yah karoti, the one who makes one who appears in all of these ways. Okay, sounds great. What do you do? Tamatmastham yena You are supposed to see it as yourself. I am that. I am that. Let me point out the structure of this mantra. The first line it shows you eko vashi sarva bhutantaratma ekam rupam bahudayakkaroti. One reality, the inner controller, being the inner being of all, uh, reality of all beings, that one appears or makes itself into this vast multifarious universe. What's it talking about? 
it's talking about Brahman, the reality of this universe, the one reality underlying this entire universe. First line of the mantra. Second line of the mantra, Tamatmastam yena nupashyanti dhira. It talks about the great identity. You are that Brahman. Tattvamasi, that you are. When we hear about one reality underlying everything and appearing as the entire universe, we say, great, that's fascinating. What's it to me though? It says, you are that. That's the, that's the second line. Then it goes further. Tesham sukham shashvatam netaresham. For those who see this as their own self, for them is, uh, is eternal bliss, not for others. So this, the second line also gives us the result of this of this realization. So three things has been, have been pointed out by this mantra. Ultimate reality, Brahman, the one reality underlying the multiplicity, one non-dual reality. Second, how do you realize it? You have to realize it as yourself. I am that. Third, what good does it do? It gives you endless bliss. Not otherwise. There's no happiness elsewhere. Um, one of the Upanishads, Chandogya Upanishad says, that which is infinite is joy, bliss. There is no joy in the limited. This is the infinite and you are that. Tamatmastam. You must realize I am that. I am Brahman. How? Anupashyanti. This is literally if you translate it. They who see after. They will see in this manner. In which manner? After what? Shankaracharya, he says, Ye nivritta bahya vrittayaha anupashyanti acharya agama upadesham anu sakshad anubhavanti. Ah, this is, uh, let me translate this. How do you realize this? Agama, the Upanishads, the text. Acharya, the teacher of the text. Anu, that means as taught, the text as taught by a competent teacher in that manner when you see. So this is very important. This is a knowledge which is being, which is being given to us. We must get it first. We must download it into ourselves first and see it through those eyes. The eyes of the text as taught by a competent teacher. Anu means afterwards, later, in this manner. Not free thinking. Or, or as is done often in uh, academia today, uh, you know, I'm going to do a deep reading of the text. So I'm going to do a deep reading and I'm, I'm going to be rewarded for getting newer and newer meanings. Rubbish. That's not how these texts are meant to be used. You can get newer meanings. You can make poetry out of it. You can do whatever you like. But first, the text as transmitted to you by um, the teacher of the lineage, they are they, the text is meant to point out something to us. If we are not receptive to what it is pointing out, and I'm trying to make new meanings out of it, no good. You can write a book or get a poetry prize for it, but you will not get enlightened. They're, they're trying to show us something. So one must see what they're trying to show us. Acharya Agama Upadesham Anu. The teaching of the text with the teacher. Not, the, not even the text. I'm reading it, making sense of it by myself. No. Uh, why, the why is the teacher important? Because it's an unbroken lineage of teachers who have been taught this from the earlier teacher. And so they know in which way to interpret the text. And tells us what kind of person we must be to make full advantage, take full advantage of the teaching. Nivritta bahya vrittaya vivekina. Nivritta bahya vrittaya. The continuous engagement with the external world must come to a stop. Or we must be able to stop, at least for a while, our uh, obsessive engagement with the world, with people, with the world, with our own bodies, with our own little problems. That means vairagya, a dispassion, a certain detachment from the world must first be cultivated before you can take advantage of these teachings. Otherwise, we just not get it. Either one will not get interest in this or one will not see the point of all of this. Or even if we get, we see, we are interested and we see the point of it, it will not dawn upon us. 
that breakthrough will not happen. And then, so this is the meaning of anupashyanti. Pashyanti, see. But see how after, in this way, as taught by the teacher, not by the teacher himself. Again, the other way around is also there. There are teachers who say, I'm enlightened. Or really, which lineage, which book are you going to teach from? Books, I don't care for books. I don't belong to any lineage. I have discovered this by myself. They may well have. But it's no good for us. These are, um, you know, red flags. So there must be some kind of lineage which is being followed. So some kind of guarantee of that there are people who have become enlightened in this path for centuries, if not millennia. So text and teacher, both are important. And then he uses the word dhira. Literally, it means in Sanskrit, dhairya. Dhairya means a quality of patience, a quality of spiritual toughness, a quality of steadiness. Patience, steadiness, but in a sense of a spiritual steadiness and patience. Very important. In the midst of happiness and sorrow, I, my attention must be fixed on that reality, which, which the teacher and the text have taught me, which I've got it, I've understood it, but then the, I'll be buffeted by the waves of pain and pleasure, buffeted by the waves of terror and temptation, buffeted by or dazzled by the magical display of samsara generated by my past karma. In the midst of that, to have the patience and steadiness to hold on to this um, vision, to this inner vision, uh, to this realization, that is dhira. It, it takes some doing. Uh, that, that kind of stability is necessary. Here, let me point out um, yes, courage, fortitude, people are pointing it out in the comments. It is true. All of these, but Dhira is like a spiritual hero who has that, that power that's required. Now, someone asked the question, so isn't, so this insight which we get, teacher text gives us this insight. I am awareness. And the whole universe emerges from that awareness. So it's one underlying reality. I am that underlying reality. And I begin to get it. Now, what is the role of meditation here? Isn't meditation necessary for that breakthrough? And having that breakthrough to be stabilized in it, isn't meditation absolutely necessary? The answer here is, it, it's, this is very sophisticated, very deep. One must pay attention carefully here. The answer here is both yes and no. Why yes, meditation is necessary at both stages. To make the breakthrough, meditation is necessary. The mind, which is habitually disturbed, must be calmed and focused. That's why Shankaracharya said here, the, we must get the development, uh, the, uh, we must develop the capacity of not being scattered in the world, not being continuously um, pulled out, sucked out by the world. By here, vritya. Vritti means um, the externalized activity of the mind. That must cease. So those of us whose minds are... Um, most of us in that case would benefit from being mindful, would benefit from meditation of some sort, mantra meditation, breath meditation, whatever it is. Then once this breakthrough happens, once this clarity comes, this knowledge becomes a living knowledge for us. Yes, it is true. I can honestly say it is true. Then again, yes, meditation is useful to keep us steady in that, to establish us in that. And that's called nididhyasana. Vedantic meditation, non-dual meditation, where the vision of the Atman is clear to you. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, stabilize yourself in that vision. And do not let other thoughts arise. Thoughts, perceptions, memories, do not let those things arise. Study there. Um, so this is yes, why meditation is absolutely necessary. Now no. Why no? Because since this is already an accomplished fact, you are pure consciousness. You are Brahman. Right now, we are that right now. Meditation is not going to make us more Brahman. 
meditation is not you know, even going to make you more steady as brahman are you kind of you are we understand yes yes but i was shaky earlier and i'll be more steady no what was shaky and what becomes more steady it's the mind you as brahman were always rock steady even when you were completely not interested in vedanta completely immersed in worldliness completely in the midst of suffering you are rock steady as brahman that this understanding must come otherwise i'll tell you what happens is we become dependent on meditation it's meditation which is giving me access to my nature as brahman and see yeah that sounds right no it isn't so i am sitting here on this chair right now this is what where i am what practice should i do to sit on this chair say nothing just be as you are but see some if somehow i don't understand this i need some practices then you might design some artificial practices well get up take a walk around come and sit back and notice that you have sat on the chair that's how you sit on the chair now if i get addicted to that practice i'll be forever taking a little walk around and coming back and sitting on the chair because my mind is telling me somehow you are not sitting on the chair this might sound silly that you are brahman is even greater a fact than the fact that i'm sitting on the chair right now no meditation is not an absolute necessary for you to realize that you are brahman because um this notion that i am not brahman is born of ignorance in the mind this notion has to be removed and that removal of the notion is the job of this insight given by vedanta so then meditation is not necessary again be careful meditation before breakthrough after breakthrough necessary because the mind demands it consider three levels one the level of the sort of basic level which most i guess most of us we are at that level we need a calm mind and therefore meditation is necessary prolonged effort with effort with all care to steady the mind we will immediately see the benefits of that um, this um, inwardization calming focus whatever our med- meditation technique all of them have one thing in common they they are designed to train the attention so this training of attention we can all benefit from as the mind is calmed then use the vedantic teaching it could be drig drishya here is something that i see that seen the eyes are the seer the eyes are something that i am aware of i blink my eyes and i notice carefully the mind is the seer of the eyes then with that calm and steady mind i notice that whatever arises in the mind is appearing to me the witness consciousness and then steady there that witness consciousness not as an object continuously discarding whatever objects pop up external or internal steady there that's the basic the vedanta says that this is the state of the the lowest kind of spiritual seeker you're talking about a person steady in samadhi a higher the the a better kind of spiritual seeker would be a person who sees this truth that with eyes open eyes closed and this one consciousness so stay in that one consciousness like a lamp not flickering every um uh, start in the mind you know is an object which points back to you the one consciousness because every thought in the mind uh, is being illumined by me the consciousness just as as i see everything everything that i see is reminding me that i have eyes so if everything i see instead of attracting my attention reminds me to take my attention back to the eyes that's an example in the same way every experience that i have if it's a reminder to me to turn the attention inwards to awareness itself and then it's not that i start thinking about awareness no 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 even those are thoughts so stay there that is vedantic non dual meditation nididhyasana that's for the that uh, a little better the better grade of spiritual seeker and then vedanta says the highest grade of spiritual seeker is the one who sees this directly he sees just as the sunlight is not Um, affected by what it illumines illumining mud doesn't make sunlight muddy illumining the water doesn't make sunlight wet 
Similarly, I, the consciousness, shining, I'm not affected by whatever experiences arise in consciousness. Just as and various things appear in the mind, in dreams, similarly, I, the consciousness, one consciousness, I'm clearly one in all bodies and minds. And all bodies, minds, and the worlds, they all appear in me, the consciousness. This is directly evident to this person, the best kind of spiritual seeker. So with eyes closed, eyes open, always in that, effortlessly. No effort of mind is anymore required for that seeker. That is what is called Sahaja Samaj. Someone like, say, Ramana Maharshi was naturally in that state all the time. Um, so these are different grades. That person makes no effort for meditation. The middle grade person makes an effort for meditation, but it's a non-dual meditation, stilling oneself in that realization. And the basic grade of seeker uh, makes an effort in meditation for first stilling the mind and then discovering this reality that I am pure consciousness and trying to stay there. Three grades. And therefore, the role of meditation also changes. Dhiraha, steady. One must remain steady in this vision. I am pure consciousness in the midst of sorrows also. He says, Tesham Sukham Shashvatam. What is the result of this? This practice. The result of this realization and this practice. Eternal bliss. Unbroken bliss. Your waking is bliss. Whatever you experience in your waking life, every bit of it is bliss. All our dreams are bliss. And deep sleep is bliss. Our smiles are bliss. And our tears also are bliss. How can tears be bliss? How can unpleasantness be bliss? It is. Um, so I've given the example of a South Sri Ramakrishna in, when he is suffering from terminal throat cancer and yet his disciple Turyananji says, you are in bliss and Sri Ramakrishna agrees. How can you be in bliss in the midst of terrible physical pain? Conventional religion will say, well, there is God, pray to God, maybe there will be a miracle and your cancer will go into remission. It, it's been known to happen. But for every case that happens, also it doesn't happen. Or the yogic approach will be, well, focus your mind on the self or on God to such an extent that you cannot actually, there's no bandwidth left over for feeling suffering or unhappiness or pain. That can be done also. The mind can be focused in samadhi through great effort and long practice so that actually you don't feel um, physical pain. But neither of those is meant here. What is meant is what, exactly what Sri Ramakrishna is undergoing. Actually feeling everything in life. Seeing, feeling, pain. And yet, at the level of that one consciousness, I am at bliss. I am in bliss. Why? Well, it's like consciousness is like Broadway. And the, the Broadway show is, is like the theater of our life. Is, is the play of our life. Just as a tragedy in Broadway is also enjoyment, a comedy in Broadway is also enjoyment, uh, smiles are enjoyment, tears when you are weeping for a well-performed tragedy in, in a Broadway uh, show, you're actually enjoying. That's enjoyment. So this ananda, this sukha is not pleasure. Even in the underlying sukha and dukkha, underlying pleasure and pain, there's one seamless bliss. Because this whole drama is taking place in the Broadway theater of, of your consciousness, of you, the consciousness. And therefore, unbroken bliss. If something is pleasant is presented, that's happiness. If something unpleasant, painful, humiliating, uh, frustrating arises, that is happiness. If nothing arises in deep sleep or deep meditation, that is happiness. Tesham shashtvatam sukham, unbroken bliss. For the deeper reason that your very name is happiness. Shantam, Shivam, in, in the Mandukya Upanishad, it says your name is peace, your name is happiness. You are that happiness. How can you not be happy? That sounds awfully philosophical. Will such a person be actually happy in the way we understand happiness? Yes. Sri Ramakrishna gives an example of such a person. This wandering Paramahamsa who came, who... Um, and was always smiling 
and he had a pure childlike face and always smiling. He lived in a little cottage on the bank of the Ganga for, for some time in the temple of Kali, Dakshineshwar, in the temple garden. And Sri Ramakrishna said, you'd always be smiling and laughing. So he's actually feeling happy in the way we feel happy. And what would he do? He would sometimes come out of his cottage and look at the sky and the river, the Ganga, the temple and the people and shout in delight. In, uh, he would say, wow, the wonderful uh, glory. Uh, how, how amazing. What is how amazing? Ekam rupam karoti. This line from the Upanishad. How that one is appearing as the many. How is that one pure subject consciousness is appearing as this objective universe? What a delight. Here it is, appearing as uh, human beings and animals and the birds of the air and the fishes of the river. Here it is, appearing as the laughing child and the weeping uh, person, or person. Here it is, the child who is newborn and the dead man being taken for cremation. Yeah. All of it is this one reality. How delightful. How amazing. And Sri Ramakrishna says sometimes this this uh, Paramahamsa, this enlightened being, he would roll on the ground in, in, in laughter. He couldn't control himself. And unlike Totapuri, Sri Ramakrishna's own teacher, Totapuri dismissed the personal God. So this one did not. Uh, he, oh, I'm confusing it with another one, who, who was like this also, but a little more crazy. He came to the temple of Kali and chanted a hymn to the Divine Mother Kali. And Sri Ramakrishna says, the temple shook. And, with, and it's a huge temple. I mean, it's just a vibration. This one person for whom God is ever a, effortlessly a, a reality. That when I said the three grades of, uh, of uh, non-dual seekers, the highest grade is like this. The second person Sri Ramakrishna mentions that uh, is a little more crazy than this one. At least this person was nice and clean and happy and delighted, childlike. The second one was like a madman. He's dressed in rags and he came... Um, even there were beggars who used to be fed. Nobody would eat, sit and eat with him. He seemed like a, he was a crazy person. Even the beggars would not let him sit, sit uh, with, with them. And so this finally this man would go uh, and eat with the dogs. When the food would be thrown out and the street dogs would come and eat, this man would share the food with the, with the dogs. And the, Sri Ramakrishna gave such a vivid description of this crazy uh, holy man he would throw his arm around the shoulders of a dog and both of them would eat from the same plate. Um, but this, and Sri Ram, it scared Sri Ramakrishna. He says, I prayed to the Divine Mother, will I also become like that? Let me not become like that. Will my madness of, about God, will, about the self-realization take me to that level of this madness, of the craziness? And yet this crazy man, Sri Ramakrishna immediately saw through him and said, this is a fully enlightened being. He goes to the temple of Kali and prays. It's such a thunderous um, hymn, a stotra, that the whole temple seemed to vibrate. And Sri Ramakrishna says, the mother smiled. Uh, he saw this. And then this crazy man, he left the temple garden and he walked off. And Sri Ramakrishna told his nephew, Vridaya, that this is an enlightened person, fully enlightened person. So Vridaya chased this uh, holy man, said, sir, please teach me, how can I become enlightened? This man wouldn't reply for a long time and then stopped and pointed at the water in the drain. He says, when the water in the drain and the water in the holy Ganga, you see the both are the same reality, exactly like that. You see the same reality everywhere. Then you are enlightened. Exactly what this mantra is saying. And then, of course, this story had a funny ending. He said, make me your disciple. And then the holy man started, he picked up a stone to throw at Hiday. So Hidai ran off in fear and the man threw the stone down and then disappeared and is never seen again. So it is possible that there are such people who realize this. Um, and my point is they actually feel happiness the way we would define happiness. Not just pure consciousness and limitless awareness and the happiness of that, but also real smiles and laughter and delight and you know, smiley face, that also effortlessly all the time. Netaresham, not for others, is a warning. Shankaracharya explains, not others. Bhaya sakta buddhinam avivekinam. Swatma bhutam api avidya vyavadhanat. Not for others. Who are these others? 
whose minds are ever attached to the world, to wealth and pleasures and success, or problems and suffering and misery, continuously minds are messed up, engaged with that. Aviveka, those who do not discern the reality from the appearance. Um, although Swatma Bhutam, although it's their own self, you are that Brahman. Yet, Avidya Vyavadhana, because the obstruction of ignorance is there. Why is ignorance there? Because Viveka is not that the discernment is not clear, that teaching does not take hold. Why doesn't the discernment, the teaching take, not take hold? Because minds are continuously flowing outwards. So for such people, it will not become clear. For the rest, those who see this, Sukham Shashvatam, unbroken bliss. Good. Um, let me look at the comments. Michael Bird says, love, is love just an appearance to consciousness or is love the very fundamental makeup of, the, of consciousness? Uh, both. Love in the sense of an emotion appears in consciousness. It's, it's uh, a capacity of the mind. But in a deeper sense, love as ananda is the very nature of consciousness. So sat, chit, ananda. And that ananda is, in fact, in Vaishnava Vedanta schools, that ananda itself is called bhakti or love. So in a deeper sense, love is the very structure of, uh, or is the fundamental nature of this very universe. When you say a word, word like love, well, it's, it's an emotion. An emotion is in the mind. And the mind is illumined by consciousness. So it cannot be a fundamental reality. But consciousness itself is also love in the sense of ananda. Shiva Priya says, external universe is manifestation of our thought and not real in the physical sense. I did not say that. From an Advaitic perspective, both thought and external objects are appearances. External objects appear in consciousness. And the subject also appears in consciousness and the subject experiences the object. Both are enabled by consciousness and given existence by consciousness. Because if you say the external universe is nothing but our thought, that's something called subjective idealism. Advaita Vedanta is not subjective idealism. Shankaracharya takes a lot of effort to distinguish this from the Yogachara Vigyanavada view of Buddhism, which is a subjective idealist philosophy. There, there's no external world, nothing apart from thought. But Advaita Vedanta does not say there's nothing apart from thought. No, no, the world is there. There's an object. You are there. You're the subject. But your reality is pure consciousness, the Atman, Brahman, which you discover. And that is the reality of the subject and the object also, both. That is the meaning of Atman is Brahman. Whatever we see, whomsoever we meet, are all in our thoughts. No, no, no. no. Whatever we see, whomsoever we meet, they are all outside our thoughts and they come into our thoughts through our uh, you know, epistemic instruments. But both our thoughts and the, world's out, the world outside, the so-called outside, all are appearances in consciousness. Priya Kulkarni says, many cosmologists allude to the non-separatedness without talking about Vedanta. Right. These are all very interesting developments in modern physics. Michael Burt said, didn't the physicist who won the 2022... Nobel Prize proved that quantum entanglement, the universe is neither local nor real. Yes, I have, people have forwarded those articles to me. Yeah, th as I said, it's very interesting. Peter says, does the witness consciousness observe the actions of the body? Opening up a door or walking to the subway, etc. Be careful when we say observe. Observes looks like an action. So like I'm observing you. What's going on in the screen? I'm observing the screen. Not like that. Consciousness choicelessly illumines everything. So the very experience of opening a door, experience, your, it's an experience of walking to the subway. There is sight and sound and color and there are internal thoughts and judgments about it. All of it feels like something. But why does it feel like something? Because you are, you are conscious. This is consciousness gives us the first person experience of life. In fact, that's the name of the book by Christoph Koch. The feeling of life itself. What is the feeling of life itself? Consciousness. Of course, Advaita Vedanta would say that's the consciousness already mediated through the mind and the senses. But anyway, still consciousness. And it gives us the experience of life. Um, it's not like a little person in the head which is observing everything. It's rather like the light which illumines everything. Presence of things, changing things, absence of things, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. All these experiences are uh, revealed, illumined, given very existence by consciousness right now. 
Priya, what is the Buddhist equivalent of the third uh, state of breakthrough in real life? Third state of breakthrough? You mean the 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 one who effortlessly sees the one consciousness not being affected by the world, the one consciousness which is in the midst of uh, multiplicity, effortlessly, without the support of any kind of meditative practices. Yes. Now, equivalent means in Dzogchen Buddhism, that's the highest uh, attainment or the, that's, that's full-blown enlightenment. At least there's one uh, teacher, Longchenpa, who puts it in those, uh, those terms. All right. Very good. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu